Hey, I'm Dr. Michael Hunter, forensic pathologist from Autopsy, Reels Channel's medical mystery series on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to download the Podcast One app and subscribe. Then go to reels.com, that's R-E-E-L-Z.com, to find more programs like this one on Reels Channel. A sad day in the world of music as fans mourn the loss of rock star Chris Cornell. Cornell had been on tour with his band and died just hours after a performance in Detroit. Chris Cornell and Soundgarden were the original grunge pioneers. Soundgarden was an incredible band. Nobody sounded like them. They just blew my mind. Chris was known for his electrifying performances. He's like the grunge James Brown. As well as his striking voice. His voice was remarkable. Man, that guy can sing. But behind the confident persona, Chris battled with depression, along with an addiction to alcohol and prescription drugs. He literally drank more than any human being I've ever seen in my entire life. At some point, you lose control. However, in 2002, Chris went to rehab and turned his life around. He was one of the great beacons and success stories of sobriety and recovery. And there was this whole other level of joy in his life because of his family. But on May 18, 2017, he was pronounced dead just hours after performing with his band Soundgarden. Chris Cornell's official cause of death was suicide by hanging. But from all accounts, he had his addictions under control and his personal life and career were thriving. So I'm going to find out why did Chris Cornell take his own life. World-renowned medical examiner and forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter has performed around 5,000 autopsies, collaborating closely with law enforcement and other forensic specialists. His pivotal role in investigating suspicious cases has revealed the truth behind mysterious deaths for over 20 years. Following Chris Cornell's death, his autopsy was released by the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office in Detroit, Michigan. The autopsy stated the cause of death to be hanging and the manner of death suicide. Chris Cornell claimed to be clean from illegal drugs and alcohol since 2003. His career was on a high and he was happily married with a loving family. At first glance, there is no obvious reason for him to commit suicide. I'm going to analyze his autopsy report and other medical evidence to discover what exactly caused Chris Cornell to take his own life. April 28, 2017, Amelie Arena, Tampa, Florida, less than three weeks before Chris Cornell's death. Soundgarden is kicking off its U.S. Spring Summer Tour. The group reformed in 2010 after more than a decade apart. This is their first live show in two years. Like, this was Soundgarden. They're back. They're real. Their new material sounds great. And they played better. Chris sang better. He seemed his most comfortable when he was just singing his heart out in front of the band. He was made to be in that moment on the stage. But offstage, Chris was more reserved. 
When you meet Chris Cornell for the first time, you have to remind yourself that it's Chris Cornell because he's so unassuming. He almost fades into the background. He almost wanted to fade in the background. Although he projected an image of confidence face-to-face, in person, he was very shy. You know, very um, sensitive, vulnerable, difficult to know. Looking at reports, Chris Cornell wasn't much of a partier prior to his death. And as I can see from this photo, taken shortly before he died, he looked like a very physically healthy 52-year-old. He doesn't seem to be the classic rock star whose body's been compromised by years of excess. Christopher John Boyle was born in Seattle on July 20th, 1964, to parents Edward F. Boyle and Karen Cornell. He was one of six siblings. Chris's love of music was ignited after finding a large collection of Beatles albums abandoned in his neighbor's flooded basement. Chris, as an introspective kid, just went deep into the Beatles. So that, I think, really cemented his love of music. He had a strict Catholic upbringing and didn't have a close relationship with his parents, particularly his father. When Chris talked about his parents, he said we just didn't really have a lot of communication going on. Chris's parents divorced when he was 14. And shortly after, he took his mother's maiden name, Cornell. Rebellious by nature, he dropped out of high school when he was 16, and his mother bought him a drum kit to focus his energy on something positive. Chris worked various menial jobs, such as cleaning fish guts, while playing drums with various bar bands around Seattle. In 1984, he formed Soundgarden with guitarist Kim Thale. Drummer Matt Cameron and bassist Ben Shepard joined the group a few years later. I'm Chris. I'm Kim. We're Soundgarden, and you're watching Raw Power. Please welcome Soundgarden! I saw Soundgarden in 88, and I was like, whoa. Like, it was just like a blur of flesh and drumsticks and guitar amps, and it was just this psychedelic, just ball of fire. It was phenomenal. I was immediately blown away by the power in Chris's voice. You didn't hear anything like that coming from anyone else. Their breakthrough album, Super Unknown, debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 album chart and sold nine million copies worldwide. Black hole sun, Songs like Black Hole Sun demonstrated Chris's powerful voice and dark lyrical style, along with his mainstream appeal. The album won two Grammys, and Soundgarden became one of the most popular rock bands of the era. Sunday, May 14, 2017. Kansas City, Missouri. Three days before Chris Cornell's death. Chris is backstage during a gig at the Starlight Theater. He sends Mother's Day messages to his wife and to his mother-in-law, Tony Carianis. Chris has been married to his second wife, Vicki Cornell, for 13 years. They have two children, Tony, 12, and Christopher Nicholas, 11. 
Chris was clearly very much in love with Vicky, and he was also in love with her family. She came from a big, bustling Greek family, and he liked that. He liked being in that kind of environment. However, there are no special messages to his own mother, Karen Cornell. Reports suggest that Chris was no longer in contact with his own parents. I wonder if his childhood experiences hold any clues to his death. When I talked to Chris about his family, both his parents were alcoholics. When you have parents who are alcoholics, you don't quite know what's going to happen day to day. You don't know where you stand, and I think it's scary. In interviews, Chris revealed he started drinking at the age of 16, and that his alcohol consumption became particularly heavy during his 20s and 30s. Data shows that alcoholism is directly linked to approximately 50% of all suicides. Did alcohol abuse contribute to Chris Cornell's death? I think that the grunge era was definitely loaded with a lot of alcohol. It was definitely part of the culture. It was all pervasive. I mean, it was everywhere all the time. We played our shows in bars, so there was drinking. And when, when you tour, you tour from one bar to the next. One thing that, that really surprised me interviewing Chris Cornell was he literally drank more than any human being I've ever seen in my entire life. I think we talked for about four or five hours, and I think he drank about a bottle of champagne per hour. Chris's parents were alcoholics, so alcoholism, addiction, is something that he grew up seeing all around him. It's very likely that um, a young child begins to see that as you know, an appropriate way of coping. Despite his alcohol abuse during the 1990s, his autopsy reveals that his heart, liver, and kidneys were essentially normal. And his toxicology report shows no traces of alcohol in his blood the night he died. During the last 14 years of his life, Chris claimed to be alcohol-free. In an interview in 2011, Chris Cornell stated that Soundgarden had an unspoken agreement to be alcohol-free. The biggest difference I noticed is that there's no beers or bottles of Jack Daniels around, and there was never a discussion about we should do this and not have beers or bottles of Jack Daniels around. It's just not there. However, alcohol wasn't the only substance Chris was abusing. I can see here that he developed a habit that would have much greater and far-reaching consequences. Take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. You deserve gorgeous, professional hair color delivered to your door starting at just $22. It's really an awesome bargain for anyone who is uh, working from home and just needs an awesome option to be able to do uh, in your bathroom by yourself. Uh, it's really, really easy. For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many Madison Reed clients comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love the results 
results. Gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon, which is a really great option right now because I know some of us don't have um, salons available to go to. So when you can just sort of go online and look up sort of the best option for you, uh, it's a really, really great way to go about coloring your hair. And Madison Reed makes it really simple. If you go to their website, you can sort of look through all their different color options and find one that's perfect for you. And what makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones to create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Autopsy listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code LASTHOURS. That's code LASTHOURS. On May 17, 2017, the music world was left in shock when singer Chris Cornell died at the age of just 52, shortly after performing with his Grammy Award-winning band Soundgarden. Cornell had been on tour with his band and died just hours after a performance in Detroit. Renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter is investigating Chris's case. I've established that Chris Cornell wasn't the stereotypical, hard-drinking, hard-living rock star. He gave up alcohol in 2003 and was a devoted family man with a successful career. So what caused him to tragically take his own life? Sunday, May 14, 2017, New York. Chris arrives home for Mother's Day to spend time with wife Vicky, daughter Tony, and son Christopher. Christopher, dad's home. As he got older, the passion for the music was still there, but there was this whole other level of joy in his life because of his family. He was going to be the number one thing for the kids. He was always going to be there. And, and I think it actually worked. Chris did his best to be a normal father, as this clip with daughter Tony shows. On a scale of 1 to 10, how do I do, like, normal? 20. Wow, oh my goodness. Chris wanted to give his children the upbringing he never had. When I talked to Chris about his family, it was a big family. It was about being feeling a little lost in that big family. And he didn't always know if people cared. And Chris, at this time, really experimented with drugs. In interviews, Chris stated that he consumed marijuana and psychedelic drugs during an intense two-year period. He was only 12 years old. This could have had serious, long-lasting effects. During the 1970s, Seattle underwent the worst post-depression unemployment for any major U.S. city. And along with the unemployment came other problems. Seattle being on the major north-south corridor um, is a town where drugs happen. That era was definitely loaded with a lot of alcohol um, and a lot of drugs. He's been pretty candid in, in his interviews about uh, his battles with drug addiction early on as a teenager. Being a teenager in the 70s, there was actually a lot of social pressure to drink, to do drugs, to fit in. So whenever somebody at the high school had a bunch of LSD, well, sure, we'll try that. Awesome. LSD, or lysergic acid diethylamide, also known as acid, 
is a psychedelic drug known for its psychological effects. Psychedelic drugs work by interfering with the brain's serotonin and dopamine receptors, resulting in altered moods and hallucinations. Effects can last as long as 12 hours. I can see that Chris also used PCP, also known as angel dust. PCP and LSD do similar things to the brain, but LSD is a psychedelic drug, causing the user to see shapes, patterns, and colors that aren't there. While PCP is a dissociative anesthetic drug, which disconnects individuals from reality. In both cases, users can experience what's known as a bad trip, when feelings of euphoria change to feelings of extreme anxiety and terrifying thoughts. This can be very traumatizing, especially for a 12-year-old. Chris had an experience with angel dust when he was 14. He took angel dust and had such a bad trip that he became agoraphobic. You know, I think today you think, oh my God, he's doing angel dust at 14, but people didn't blink at that. That that was like being a teenager in the 70s. Reports state that Chris suffered from agoraphobia, and this could well have been a result of his early experimentation with drugs. The use of PCP and LSD can cause a chemical imbalance in the brain, leading to a heightened stress response in certain situations, triggering feelings of panic. Agoraphobia is a fear of being out in open spaces, out in public. It comes from the Greek word agora, which means marketplace. And it's, it's this worry that if I'm out of this small place I feel safe in, which is usually one's home, then I'll, you know, I'll die, I'll have a panic attack, won't be able to breathe, I'll lose control. And what happens is, is that people tend to cope with this by avoiding. He really just stayed inside and listened to records because he was afraid to be outside and around people. After his bad experience with PCP, Chris claimed he gave up illegal hallucinogenic drugs at age 14 and never took them again. His toxicology report shows no signs of marijuana, LSD, or PCP in his system, so I know he wasn't under their influence at the time of death. However, I cannot underestimate the negative, long-term effects these drugs had on a young, developing brain. In 1996, two decades later, Chris revealed that he still struggled with agoraphobia. I tend to be alone more than anyone I've ever met. Then you have the other paranoia, which is that what if all of a sudden I was in a situation where I had to be in a small space with a lot of people for a long period of time, you know? So... Some people are afraid of, of being alone, and some people like me are afraid that I might get stuck on a, on a love boat or something. <laughs> Agoraphobia is an anxiety disorder, which affects between 5 to 30% of people at some point in their life. Anxiety disorders often occur with other mental disorders. And given Chris's childhood trauma, I wonder what other psychological challenges Chris faced. Could these hold a clue to discovering why? He took his own life. This is Dr. Michael Hunter. Did you know you can stream the autopsy television series on Roku and Fire TV? Well, you can. 
Just download the Reels app and subscribe to see the TV show behind the podcast. And if you've got Prime, it's on Amazon channels too. Once you're streaming, you'll find more real life and death programs from Reels like Copycat Killers about murderers inspired by movies. You'll also get access to Murder Made Me Famous, the real crime series that profiles people like Jody Arias and Drew Peterson, who are household names because of the murders they committed. It all comes from the real-life mystery fans at Reels Channel. Find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. Chris Cornell's commanding stage presence and striking voice cemented him as one of the world's top rock performers. But on May 18, 2017, he was pronounced dead at the age of just 52. World-renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter is examining the case. I've discovered that Chris had a history of alcohol abuse and at only 12 years of age went through a period of heavy psychedelic drug use. He subsequently developed the anxiety disorder agoraphobia. Anxiety often occurs with other mental disorders, particularly depression, and reports state Chris did have the condition. Over 50% of people who commit suicide suffer from major depression, making it the leading factor in suicide in the United States. 8.45 p.m., May 17, 2017, Fox Theater, Detroit, Michigan. Less than five hours before his death. Chris is on stage during his final performance. In the audience, is veteran rock photographer Ken Settle. The last time I photographed Chris was at the very final uh, Soundgarden show. It, it, was, it was an emotional thing. During their performance, Soundgarden played a cover of Led Zeppelin's In My Time of Dying. It's, it's been reported that they often did do that song, and usually they would work parts of that song into um, some of their own music. So whether that meant something you know, that serious to him at that time, I, I, I really don't know. Many believe that the dark songs Chris sang and the music he wrote offered an insight into his state of mind. Chris Cornell has always said, I suffer from depression. I don't think he smiled much. You know, as far as, was he happy? I don't think, I don't think that, was, that was his thing. He did have an air about him that was super intense. In 2014, Chris stated in a Rolling Stone interview, I think that I always struggled with depression and isolation. The mood of Seattle and the way that I interpreted that mood was always a little bit introspective and dark. Depression is a mood disorder that affects the way one thinks, feels, and behaves. It's characterized by the imbalance of chemicals in the brain, specifically serotonin and dopamine. From reports, it appears Chris's depression may have started nearly 20 years before he died. In 1990, tragedy struck when singer Andrew Wood, Chris Cornell's closest friend, overdosed on heroin and died. Chris saw Andrew Wood as a brother that he never had. The most important person dies and dies horribly. Processing that became a big focus for Chris's art and life. 
Chris wrote two songs in tribute to his late friend and continued to use music as a way of dealing with his personal struggles. Read any Chris Cornell lyric, he's been writing about the, how dark it is inside for him. It's scary to think about the songs he wrote and how he ended. He had a song, Fell on Black Days, like Suicide, Pretty Noose, and that puts a pretty fine point on it. I mean, I think that that song is very hard for Soundgarden fans to listen to today. In Chris's case, because there are uh, a recurrence of these dark themes, you might think, ah, oh, well, that's, that's really autobiographical. In an interview, Chris explained the meaning behind the song, Fell on Black Days. Everyone's lives go through periods of good and bad and positive and negative, and I don't think that we can necessarily predict one or the other is going to happen. Everything was great and suddenly it's not, and no one thing happened. You just suddenly realize you're not content and you're not happy. Chris's dark song titles and lyrics suggest he was struggling with deep emotional pain. I wouldn't be surprised if antidepressants were used to manage his condition. Antidepressants work by increasing the levels of serotonin and dopamine in the brain, returning the chemical balance back to normal, stabilizing mood and emotion. The toxicology shows no evidence of this medication in his blood the night he died. If Chris wasn't taking antidepressants at the time of his death, this will have likely increased his chance of engaging in risky behaviors, such as substance abuse, as well as carrying a higher risk for suicide. For that reason, I certainly cannot rule out depression as a contributing factor to his death. During Soundgarden's final performance, Concertgoers and fans noticed other facets to Chris's on-stage behavior. You know, later on in the night, there were moments where his voice maybe wasn't as consistent. When I look back at YouTube videos, I can see some moments where there was some slurring and, and there was some moments where he w wasn't uh, hitting the notes like you would expect. Dr. Michael Hunter has discovered that along with a history of alcohol abuse, on several occasions, Chris told the media he had an addiction to prescription drugs. Chris was abusing the medication OxyContin, the brand name for oxycodone. It's a synthetic opioid, which is taken in tablet form and is a long-lasting painkiller. Opiates such as oxycodone work by attaching themselves to opioid receptors in the brain. This prevents the brain from receiving messages that indicate the presence of pain. Oxycodone can cause slurring and drowsiness, which Chris appeared to exhibit during his final performance. Was he under the influence of oxycodone the night he died? During the 1990s, Chris's intensely physical performances began to take their toll. His body was thrashed from being one of the most physical performers of all time. I mean, he's like the grunge James Brown. Never seen anybody like him. Like, you know, his shirt was off after maybe the second or third song. It was like you were watching an athlete pushing themselves to the height of their exertion. 
he really pushed his body hard. And as we all know, later in life, your body uh, reacts. In the mid-1990s, Chris sought help from a doctor. He got treated for a series of injuries. He was given a pain reliever, OxyContin, by his doctor. OxyContin was created when oxycodone was combined with a time-release ingredient, producing long-lasting pain relief. It went on the market in 1996 and was regarded as a wonder drug. At the time, the potential for abuse was not widely known, but we now recognize it as a highly addictive drug that can cause psychological and physical dependence. Oxycodone has also been reported to cause odd changes in personality, where otherwise calm and amiable people can exhibit intense mood swings and become irritable or unresponsive. In 1997, Soundgarden split, and Chris's marriage to first wife and manager Susan Silver was falling apart. There was kind of a multitude of pressures suddenly on his life. In an interview with Spin Magazine in 2006, Chris said, when my personal life got out of hand, I just got loaded. So I went through a couple of years of depression again. I started taking pills. Then I ended up having as bad a problem as anyone's going to have. Now, what this drug does is it doesn't just, you know, affect the physical pain. It actually numbs emotional pain as well. It kind of gives you some respite from everything that you're feeling. We didn't know the dangers of OxyContin. He really was a guinea pig. He said he was a pioneer, an early adopter of prescription drug abuse. In September 2002, Chris checked himself into a rehab center in Malibu. It was a month-long program, but he decided to stay an extra month. Chris really made a concerted effort to turn things around. And until he died, I thought he was one of the great beacons and success stories of sobriety. The toxicology report shows no trace of oxycodone in Chris's system, so it wasn't a contributing factor to his death. In fact, there are no reports of him taking the drug after leaving rehab in 2002. However, in light of the fact that a physical injury initially triggered Chris's oxycodone addiction, I'm intrigued to see that he suffered a shoulder injury in 2013. Was Chris taking a different painkiller to treat his shoulder? If so, was this drug being abused? And did it contribute to his death? Chris's addictions were alcohol and they were prescription drugs. It is a disease. And the reason why it is so dangerous for addicts to relapse is because they can die. Chris Cornell was touring with his Grammy award-winning band Soundgarden, but committed suicide just hours after a sellout concert in Detroit. Renowned medical pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter has been investigating the reason Chris took his own life. I've discovered Chris battled addictions from alcohol to the prescription painkiller oxycodone, but went to rehab in 2002 and turned his life around. However, a series of physical injuries in the mid-90s triggered his oxycodone addiction, 
and reports show he sustained an injury just a few years prior to his death. So, could he once again have been addicted to prescription medication? I had like a chronic shoulder problem, and, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get through tonight though. Um, it's uh, it's synthetic opium. No, I'm not. It's not that. Don't swear at me. I get in trouble with everybody. I'm just gonna power through it. The toxicology detected butalbital. It's often combined with caffeine or aspirin to relieve pain, predominantly headaches. Butabitol is a barbiturate used to depress the central nervous system. It works by relaxing muscle contractions, which can cause headache. It also causes brain cells to become resistant to nerve impulses, resulting in sedation. Like opioids, butabitol can decrease anxiety and have a relaxing effect and if used for a long time, may cause dependence. However, the concentration of butalbital in Chris's blood wasn't excessively high, so I'm not convinced this drug was being abused. 11.10 p.m., May 17, 2017. MGM Grand, Detroit. Two hours before his death. Chris signs autographs outside his hotel following Soundgarden's performance. He's accompanied by bodyguard Martin Kirsten. Hey man, In his hotel room, away from the fans, Chris is agitated. Martin gives him two tablets and leaves. I can see from reports that Chris was given Ativan, the brand name for lorazepam. Lorazepam is prescribed as a sleeping pill and to treat anxiety disorders. It's what's known as a benzodiazepine and has a sedative, calming effect on the body. It may be that Chris was using this medication as a sleeping aid after his performance. 11.30 p.m. Chris receives a call from his wife, Vicki, after their house lights switch on and off as she knows he can manipulate them remotely. No, why would I do that? Huh? Chris begins to slur his words. He says he's taken two Ativan tablets. And Vicky asks if he's taken anything else. They begin to argue. And Vicky hangs up the phone. Twelve fifteen AM, May eighteenth, two thousand seventeen. MGM Grand, Detroit. After their argument, Vicky calls Chris back, but there's no answer. She calls bodyguard Martin's room and asks him to check on Chris. He has a spare key card to Chris's suite, but the door is locked from the inside. Martin calls hotel reception to open the door but they refuse due to hotel policy. He calls Vicky back and says he's unable to gain access to Chris's room. She tells him to kick down the door. Martin now finds the bedroom door locked. Once again, he calls hotel reception, but they still refuse to open the door. 
He instructs them to call the emergency services. Martin kicks the bedroom door six times until it finally pops open. Chris is on the floor with an exercise band around his neck. Martin releases the band from the top of the door and loosens the other end around Chris's neck. He begins CPR. Detroit 911. I have a 50-year-old male inside of room 1136. The guest was attempting to hang himself. He's not breathing. No. 1 a.m. Detroit Emergency Services take over. Given Chris is a rock star and fearing that he's under the influence of opiates, the emergency services administer Narcan in an attempt to resuscitate him. Narcan is the brand name for naloxone. It's given to counteract the effects of an opioid overdose such as heroin and can be injected intravenously or into a muscle. I know that Chris didn't have any opioids in his system, so it's clear that it was administered as a precaution. 1.30 a.m. Emergency services spend over an hour attempting to revive him until a doctor arrives. He calls time of death. Sad day in the world of music as fans mourn the loss of rock star Chris Cornell. When I heard that he died, it was impossible for me to believe. It took days for it to sink in. I was completely shocked. He seemed like he completely faced these demons. On May 26, 2017, Chris Cornell was cremated at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. I don't think we really grasp someone like Chris until they're gone because we tend to take people for granted, sadly enough. We won't see his like again. Following Chris's death, there was an apparent call made by a paramedic on scene who suggested Chris may have sustained head trauma. Come on scene with a 53-year-old male. Suggestions of uh, possible strangulation, trauma to the back of the head. The call caused fans to review footage from Chris's final concert. They noticed a mark on the back of his head. Concerns were raised further when mid-performance, he uncharacteristically walked off stage. It seemed like he was a little bit perturbed about something, and that was very uncharacteristic, considering how the show started. It suggested Chris acquired an injury which may have caused a concussion. A concussion can cause confusion, memory loss, and unusual behavior such as sudden mood swings and becoming easily irritated. Did a concussion cloud Chris's judgment, and did it contribute to his death? On May 18, 2017, Chris Cornell was pronounced dead after hanging himself in his hotel room. He was only 52. He claimed to be sober since 2003 and had no illegal drugs in his system the night he died. 
renowned forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Hunter has discovered that Chris had a suspected head injury. Could this provide a clue to the investigation? Come on scene with a 53-year-old male. Suggestions of uh, possible strangulation, trauma to the back of the head. The call and the concert footage suggests that Chris sustained a head injury, which could have caused concussion, impairing Chris's judgment and therefore playing a factor in his death. But I'm doubtful whether there was actually a head injury at all. The images from Chris's final concert are inconclusive due to the quality of the footage and the lighting condition. It's also common for scene responders to suggest injuries that on further examination don't exist. In addition, there is no mention of it in the autopsy, so on that basis alone, I can discount head injury as a contributing factor to his death. There is, however, something that could have impaired Chris's judgment, and that's the anti-anxiety drug and sleeping pill lorazepam that Chris took the night he died. Chris's wife, Vicki Cornell, revealed that Chris had torn his shoulder muscle and that the injury was waking him up at night. Approximately a year before he died, Chris was prescribed lorazepam to help him sleep. Lorazepam is what's known as a benzodiazepine, a psychoactive drug that has a sedative, calming effect on the body. Benzodiazepines work by enhancing the action of the chemical GABA in the brain. GABA is a neurotransmitter that acts as a natural calming agent and helps keep the nerve activity in the brain in balance. It's involved in inducing sleepiness, reducing anxiety, and relaxing muscles. Lorazepam carries a risk of dependency. In addition, the drug can be associated with an increased risk of confusion, disorientation, depression, and sometimes suicidal thoughts. Chris's wife, Vicki, saw him as a recovering prescription drug addict due to his history of oxycodone abuse and believed that around the time of his death, he had become addicted to lorazepam. On February 21st, 2018, she appeared on ABC's Nightline. In retrospect, I've learned that it's not supposed to be given to anybody who's in recovery. And if you have to give it, um, they have to be closely monitored and it should not be given for more than two to three weeks. So in a seven-day period, he took 20-something pills and in a nine-day period, 33. So he relapsed. On March 22, 2017, Chris Cornell sent an email to a close colleague writing, would love to talk, had relapse. Chris didn't stop being an addict. The thing is about addiction is it's not a moral failing. It is a disease. Once addiction gets hold of you, it's very rarely that it leaves easily. You know, your biology is affected by addiction, right? So we, we become more and more used to whatever substance we're taking, so we need more of it and we crave it more. Your psychology is affected by it. It's clear that Chris went through a period of abusing lorazepam, but the concentration of the drug found in his system at the time of death was not high. The toxicology report shows Chris had 41 nanograms per milliliter of lorazepam in his blood, which is well within therapeutic range. Also, the fact that his bodyguard was dispensing the medication suggests the dosage was being controlled. He was also taking the painkiller butalbital, which may have been used to treat a headache, 
Although this medication can be a powerful sedative, it too was not found at high levels in Chris's system when he died. Therefore, I do not think either of these drugs directly caused Chris's death. Dr. Michael Hunter now believes he can explain what caused Chris Cornell to take his own life. Chris developed anxiety from a young age and battled with depression throughout his life. Chris was also someone who is prone to addiction, from alcohol to oxycodone. These addictions would have likely compounded his depression. The toxicology shows no evidence of antidepressants in his blood the night he died, which tells me that if he was depressed at the time of his death, his depression was not being managed. What, did his depression kill him? It, it was a part of it. But with serious addiction, you have serious depression. I can only surmise that when his time came, he was not himself. And I think that this happens whether due to substances or what have you, that a person can lose touch with themselves and with others and become so mired in their own pain, they lose sight of the consequences of their actions. Chris Cornell was a man who steered clear of the illegal drugs associated with the rock and roll lifestyle and managed to beat his addictions to alcohol and oxycodone. His successful rehabilitation in 2002 and commitment to his family are testaments to his strength of spirit and desire to lead a full and happy life. While Chris bravely faced a number of psychological challenges throughout his life, I cannot completely rule out his history of depression along with the role of prescription medications as being one of a number of factors which could have affected Chris's thought processes and decision-making. While it's hard to know what exactly caused Chris Cornell to tragically take his own life, there is a chance his judgment may have been impaired, which increased the likelihood of self-harm. Chris Cornell and Soundgarden were probably the greatest musicians from the grunge era. It's heartbreaking that he's gone. It's hard to believe. I'd like to remember Chris as he was when I first saw Soundgarden play as this elemental force, primal. Chris Cornell's legacy was incredible music that pushed genre, took emotion to its deepest place, and inspired others to do so, not for success, not for money. He had those things, but it was for catharsis. hope you enjoyed this episode of autopsy don't forget to subscribe at podcastone.com with the podcast one app or at apple podcasts then go to reels.com that's r-e-e-l-z.com for clips extras and more from the tv version of the series including reenactments and autopsy photos you'll only see on reels channel find reels on your tv at reels.com i'm dr michael hunter 